0: The World Wide Web is a Jesus wonderland. Well, maybe I should say it's a Jesus freak show. You can find any sort of Jesus you please on the web. You can find white Jesus. You can find black Jesus. You can find biker Jesus and you can find make my day Jesus you can find Obi-Wan Jesus you can find Obama Jesus you can find the National Rifle Association Jesus And you can find Lego Jesus. You can even find action figure Jesus. And you can find bobblehead Jesus. Did you, did you catch that? Watch carefully. I'll let you have one more look. There it goes. That's right. The spiel about this bobblehead Jesus goes like this. The Jesus' nodder is a plastic bobble-headed tribute to a remarkable man. Humbly dressed in common robes, Jesus stands 19 centimetres tall and offers a gesture of blessing with his hand. Put him on your dashboard and he might just inspire you to exercise patience and forgiveness on the highway. Comes in a window box with fascinating Jesus quotes and history. The Jeezel bobblehead doll nodder is an ideal, unique gift for anyone who loves Jesus Christ. Do I laugh or do I cry? (laughs) This is what Jesus has become? Is this what he means to our society? A bobblehead doll. Plastic Blessings with quotable Jesus quotes. There are so many Jesuses. One thing you can say for certain, if the measure of a person is their impact, then you have to ask whether any human being at any point in human history has had a larger or more sustained impact in culture or history. But, that sort of brings us to the point here at EU's annual conference because we're looking at Jesus more than with just a cultural or historical interest. We're not here to engage in five days of cultural studies or history lessons. We're here to engage with a living person. We're here to meet Jesus Not the Jesus of this or that ideology, not the Jesus of our own imagining, but the real Jesus who lived, died and rose again and who the Christian scriptures proclaim is Lord of all today, even though he is hidden from our sight. We're here to engage with a person, to get to know him on his terms. And that is an exciting prospect, at least I hope it is for you. Because he is more worth knowing than anyone else you might ever care to meet. But there's a catch, actually. If we want to come to grips with the Jesus who really is, then that will necessarily bring all of Christianity into our vision. Because Christianity is devotion to Jesus. It's devotion to Jesus and all that that entails about him and about us. See, people love to try to separate Jesus from Christianity, especially since Christianity smells of organised religion and that reeks of institutionalism, whereas Jesus, he's still got some sort of credibility. But see, you can't. You can't abstract Christianity away from Jesus, nor can you look at Jesus without a truckload of implications for what you think Christianity is, because Christianity is devotion to this Jesus. And so you can see there in your booklet on page 6, Alan Spence reckons that if we're going to look at Jesus, then we're in for a really big week here at annual conference. Let me quote from him there. He says... To say that Jesus Christ is determinative for Christian faith appears to be doing no more than stating the obvious. However, all the church's major doctrines, including those of the Trinity, salvation, sanctification, creation, final judgment and the coming kingdom of God have been influenced if not governed by the interpretation that Christians give to his person. This means that a comprehensive discussion of who this man really is would have to include pretty much everything that Christians distinctively hold to be true. So you can't think we're going to talk about Jesus, we've actually got to talk about everything that Christians hold to be true. So we're in for a pretty big week. In looking at Jesus, it's just the nature of the case, we are necessarily going to have to look at all of the central Christian claims. That's a bit daunting, but actually it's really exciting. But we've already got a bit of a problem, haven't we, just by looking across the web. There are so many Jesuses out there. Which Jesus are we going to talk about? Which is the real Jesus? Well, over the last 40 years, there's been actually a resurgence in scholarly and not-so-scholarly redrawing of Jesus. In the last few decades... All manner of books have been written about Jesus, reassessing him, looking at the evidence about him, who he was, what he did. You've heard of chick lit? You've heard of chick lit, right? No, there's... no oh, gentlemen. There's gentlemen out there going, no? Oh, okay. Oh, I'm not even going to try to help you, okay? Just talk to a good friend. Okay. Chick, You've heard of chick lit, some of you. Well, there's a whole another whole section of the bookshop which is called Jesus lit okay and in Jesus lit Jesus has been variously interpreted or read as a Jewish peasant teacher a deluded end of the world is nigh prophet a Jewish rabbi a mystic spirit person and many more there's so many different Jesus so if we want to understand who Jesus actually is where are we going to turn well Richard Baucom who's a Christian thinker and writer historian Reflecting on all this Jesus lit, he sounds a cautionary warning for us. This is what he says. He says, The historical Jesus comes to mean not the Jesus of the New Testament Gospels, but the allegedly real Jesus behind the Gospels. The Jesus the historian must reconstruct by subjecting the Gospels to ruthless objective so it is claimed scrutiny. From the perspective of Christian faith and theology, we must ask whether the enterprise of reconstructing a historical Jesus behind the Gospels as it has been pursued through all phases of the quest can ever substitute for the Gospels themselves as a way of access to the reality of Jesus, the man who lived in first century Palestine. We need not question that historical study can be relevant to our understanding of Jesus in significant ways. What is in question is, is whether the reconstruction of a Jesus, other than the Jesus of the Gospels, the attempt, in other words, to do all over again what the evangelists did, though with different methods, critical historical methods, can ever provide the kind of access to the reality of Jesus that Christian faith and theology have always trusted we have in the Gospels. So what he's reminding us of here is that our primary source for information about the real Jesus is the New Testament and the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John in particular. Our primary task is not to get behind the Gospels to some real Jesus. Now, our task is to grasp the presentation of Jesus in the Gospels. That's our best access to the real Jesus. But that raises a question for us, right? The question is, can we trust the Gospels? Now, whole books have been written on this. Some are on the bookstall just over there. I do hope you're going to go and have a look over there, uh, here at Ancon. And in the light of the challenge to the Gospels that's continually thrown up, say by Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code or the new atheists like Richard Dawkins, whether we can trust the Gospels or not is a really important question. All I'm going to do here is just point out a few things to get you started. If you're interested, you can actually take it further by going to Matt Moffat's seminar on tomorrow, Tuesday, on the reliability of the New Testament, or you can pick up one of the books on the bookstall. But the first thing to note is the box that's there on your outline on page seven. So the point of that list is that there are a number of what we might call in historical terms hostile sources, by which I mean ancient writers who had no reason to be pro-Christian. But these hostile sources, historical sources, they actually corroborate some pretty central claims made in the New Testament about Jesus. And you can see what's there in the box. Now, that's pretty significant because what that does is it builds our confidence that the Gospel writers haven't just engaged in creative fiction because basic truths that they proclaim are corroborated from early, non-Christian, hostile sources. It builds our confidence in the Gospel record. Well, a second factor that builds our confidence is the, in the presentation of Jesus in the New Testament is the early date of the New Testament writings. You can see there on the timeline. The earliest New Testament documents were written 15 to 20 years after Jesus' death. And a large number of them, including all the letters of Paul, were written within 25 to 30 years of Jesus' death. Now, in historical terms, that's quite close to be writing about events. Just within 30 years and the gospel accounts themselves were probably written in the latter half of that first century what's the point well all these new testament documents which are the primary source we have for information about jesus were all written in historical terms very close to the events they describe so paul barnett concludes there on your page the christian sources from the second century established that there were four genuine gospels that they had been written before the end of the first century, between 33 and, say, 90 AD. In other words, the main biographical information about Christ had been written by the lifetime after his lifetime. That is, they were written in the lifetime of eyewitnesses, people who saw Jesus live and die, and within their lifetime, these documents were written that's pretty significant in terms of access to eyewitness sources but also in terms of exposing error because if they made up a whole lot of stuff there are a heck of a lot of eyewitnesses who are still around who would pick it up so how come though we have four of these gospels why not one why are they all a little bit different to each other Well, the fourfold gospel. The first thing to say is the gospels themselves recognise that there were actually multiple attempts to write an account of Jesus' life and ministry. See there on your outline how Luke starts his gospel account. He writes, Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled amongst us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. Notice there, verse 1. Luke acknowledged that other written accounts of Jesus' life and ministry had been done. Many have undertaken to set down an orderly account, he says. But also, the sources Luke seems to esteem and use are eyewitnesses. Verse 2 there. The account of the events was handed on to Luke and his peers by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. This is good history. Good historiography. His, histori- I can't say it. Historiography. Histi- historiography. It's all in the emphasis, isn't it? Historiography. This is from eyewitness sources. But what about the relationship between these four gospel accounts you've got in your New Testament, in your Bible? Well, if you carefully compare the four gospels, we can start to see that there's an apparent dependence between them, but also some additional sources used. See, when you put the gospel side by side, it seems that Matthew and Luke both had access to Mark's gospel, since much of Mark's gospel is reproduced, more or less, in both Matthew and Luke. So presumably Mark was written first. But Matthew and Luke also share a whole lot of other material that's not in Mark, but it's in both of them. So scholars have speculated, therefore, there must have been some other written source, which they've called Q, which is German for quell, which is German for source, so it's a pretty creative name. (laughs) No one has ever found this document Q, right? So it's a hypothetical, hence it's just got dotted lines there. But it actually seems to be a pretty good hypothesis that explains this common material in Matthew and Luke that's not in Mark. Presumably, we don't have copies of Q because, frankly, once all Q's material had got incorporated into Matthew and Luke, well, why would you bother to copy out Q anymore? Because it's now in Matthew and Luke. So presumably, that's why we don't have copies of it. But in addition to Mark and Q, Matthew and Luke both have extra material about Jesus that's not in any of the other Gospels. So scholars have creatively labelled these collections of unique material M for Matthew's unique material and L for Luke's unique material. And then when you compare all of those to John's Gospel, it seems that John has been written quite independently of all of those. There's still common details, still common events, but the language John uses is quite distinctive. seems to suggest that John didn't base his Gospel on any of the other written accounts. So what does all that mean? For your confidence in the Gospel accounts about Jesus. It suggests that there are at least five independent sources, Mark, Q, M, L and John's Gospel, all writing about the same person in a fairly short time frame after Jesus' public ministry. Those five sources were combined into four Gospel accounts by four separate authors within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses of the events they described. That's a pretty decent historical record. Compared to our access to other historical figures from that era, it's a pretty amazing historical record. We know heaps more about Jesus than about any other contemporary figure. But actually, we can say even a bit more than that. As we saw with Luke's introduction, there was a real premium on eyewitness testimony. Matthew and John were both disciples of Jesus. They themselves were eyewitnesses. But even with Mark, who wasn't an apostle, there's other ancient evidence that points towards Peter, who was one of the 12 disciples, as being the eyewitness source for much of Mark's gospel. This comes from a guy, Papias, who was a bishop in 110 AD. He was reporting what he'd heard from John the Elder, the, John, the guy who wrote the, um, some of John's material in the New Testament. And what he wrote was this, he said, the elder John was saying this, Mark, in his capacity as Peter's interpreter, wrote down accurately as many things as he remembered, though not in an ordered form, of the things either said or done by the Lord. So Papias is saying, I heard from the Apostle John that Peter was the source of Mark's information. So that's, that's pretty good, actually, in terms of getting a source. Presumably what Papias meant there when he wrote "He wrote it but not in an ordered form was that Mark had sometimes moved things around out of their strict chronological sequence. That is, the Gospel accounts are not necessarily chron- chronologies. They're not just an edited, edited transcript of Jesus' ministry and teaching. Each Gospel writer has taken the eyewitness source material and he's crafted it into a faithful account of what Jesus taught and did. Now there's heaps more that we could say today about the Gospels and I've jotted down a few points there on the outline but I'm not going to go through them in any detail. If you want to, you can ask me questions about that over the course of the week in question times or you can go along to Matt's seminar uh, tomorrow or to uh, pick up a book from the bookstore. The point just being, the conclusion to all this is that we have we have good rational reason to have a lot of confidence in what's been recorded for us here in the Gospels. But then when we come to read the Gospels, we come across a bit of a speed bump. Jesus ain't no homeboy. We have to grapple with Jesus in his historical context. See, I think this is what often we think we're doing. We think we come to meet Jesus up here on the screen against a blank piece of paper. But the difficulty is we always read the Bible, like any text. We read the Bible with all sorts of background, even if we don't acknowledge it ourselves. We don't come to him just with a blank sheet of paper. One of our Chinese friends said that uh, he'd first encountered Jesus in China in a book of mythology. That is, Jesus up there with Hercules, Robin Hood, the Rainbow Serpent, and Rudolph, the red-nosed reindeer. Is that the background with which you come to the Gospels? A mythical, fictional, interesting, uplifting story. See, most of the time, I think we probably read the Gospels like this. We read them as though they were written today. We just completely transport Jesus straight into 2010 Sydney. Now, of course, what we read in the Gospels does speak to us today. If it didn't, then this would be no more than an ancient history lesson. But at the same time, we can't just abstract Jesus from his first century context and read the Gospels as though they were happening in downtown Sydney. It's not. Sydney, or Darwin, or Australia, or Florence in 2010. It's the year 30 in Judea, in Jerusalem. And that world, that world for you and for me is pretty foreign. So if we want to understand who Jesus is as we encounter him in these Gospels, and we want to actually listen to what he has to say, we have to understand he's speaking In a first century Jewish Judean context. So, I've got five tips for you then on understanding Jesus in his context. I'm going to leave you to read over the passages in this section at your leisure later, but five tips for you to help you as you read Jesus in the Gospels. First, as a Jew, Jesus was born into a people who were waiting for God to deliver on some long held promises. The two passages there on your outline from Isaiah highlight two of these long-held promises. The first is from Isaiah chapter 2. And what it said, what God promises there is that Jerusalem as Israel's capital will become the centre of worldwide worship of Israel's God, Yahweh. That's the promise. The world will come and worship Israel's God. That's a promise. Second promise is there in from Isaiah 9 is that one day God would send a king, an anointed one, a Messiah, a Christ. All those words just mean anointed one, right? Anointed one, Messiah, Christ. He would send this Messiah, this Christ, who would be a descendant of the mighty King David from Israel's past and that this Messiah will establish God's permanent rule over his people. That's big, big second promise. How come they'd receive these promises? Well, because the Jews were a chosen people in covenant with the one true living God. Second point here. Again, two passages there if you to look at later. Genesis 12, that's where the Lord initiates a relationship with Abram or Abraham. And the Lord makes him a promise that results in him becoming the forefather of the Israelite nation. So the promise the Lord makes to Abraham, are they set the agenda for the rest of the Bible. These promises the Lord makes to Abraham are programmatic for the rest of Israel's history and the storyline of the whole of the Bible. Well, the second passage is from Exodus 19 there, and if you like, if you, the call to Abraham was the moment of Israel's conception, then the Exodus, where under Moses the Lord saved his people out of Egypt, that's the moment of birth as a nation. That's where Israel came to be born as a, as a nation, a people. Now, the, the thing was, though, the whole of the Old Testament is a record of the Israelites' repeated failure to keep the Lord's covenant that he established with them. So eventually, point three, they're ejected from the Promised Land and they go into exile because of their disobedience. And you can read that, more of that on the references there on your page. However, and now this is where it's important for our task of trying to understand Jesus, in the midst of their exile, God in his mercy made promises of return. What I mean is he didn't just promise, hey, you guys will return from your exile to Jerusalem and to the country of Israel. He actually promised that he would return. The promise was that God himself would return to his people and to Jerusalem. So have a look at this one there from Isaiah chapter 52 on your page. Here's this beautiful promise. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger who announces peace, who brings good news, who announces salvation, who says to Zion or Jerusalem, Your God reigns. Listen, your sentinels lift up their voices. Together they sing for joy, for in plain sight they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth into singing, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Now, that's just quickly trying to bring you up to speed. When you come to read about Jesus in the Gospels, what you're getting is this. You're getting God had made big promises. God had established his covenant with his people, but they'd rejected him and they'd been gone into exile. But he promised, don't worry, I'll bring you back and I will return. So all of the, what all that means is there was huge expectation. They're waiting for God to fulfill his promises but they have to confront reality. So the reality in the first century was that the Jews were not in control of their own land. By the first century, the Romans had occupied and taken control. So it hardly seems that God's kept his promise. And the fact that things weren't as God had promised, that had introduced a degree of existential angst, of political instability a religious crisis for first century Jews. And to that crisis, there were different responses. You can see there four pictures on your on your page, right? And you meet these people in the Gospels when you read. There's the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees, their strategy was this. How do we deal with this crisis? The things aren't as God's promised? Their strategy was cut a deal. Cut a deal. Cut a deal with the Romans who have power because what's critical, according to them, was that we maintain our Jewish institutions, particularly the temple. So we cut a deal with the Romans so that we can keep the temple. That was their strategy. Can you see then why when you read about Jesus in the Gospels and he goes to the temple and he does stuff there, the Sadducees get a bit upset? Then you've got the Pharisees. Pharisees had a different response. Their catch cry wasn't cut a deal. Their catch cry was Torah, Torah, Torah. Torah meaning Old Testament law. That was their cry. Keep the Old Testament law. That's what we should do in this crisis. Keep the law, all of it, completely. Purity, that's what we should do. They distinguished themselves by this religious law keeping. But there's other groups too. There's these Essenes. Now the Essenes were a group that were responsible for the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you've ever heard of them. Their catch cry was, run away. Run away. That's why there's joggers there, right? Their strategy was run away. So they literally removed themselves and went and established a new community in the desert. Run away. Start again. That was their strategy. Finally, there were the zealots. What was their cry? Their cry was, no king... But the Lord. No king but God. These guys weren't going to put up with Roman occupation and rule. We have no king. Caesar, he's not our king. God is our king. They want to rise up against the oppressive power of Rome and drive them out by force, hence the sword. And frankly, in, a couple of, in the couple of hundred years leading up to 70 AD, there were a whole lot of political uprisings led by self-proclaimed messiahs or anointed ones who were going to bring about all of God's promises through force. And the last uprising like that actually led to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 by the Romans. So four very different responses to this crisis going on within Israel. So when you're reading the Gospels, you've got to know, first century Israel, that was a political, religious hotbed of of revolutionary fervour. And there was serious expectation that God would intervene in some way to fulfil his promise. And you can catch whiffs of that there in the New Testament, even just there in Luke 2 with Simeon or in uh, Jesus' disciples in Acts 1. There was this expectation, when is God going to do this thing? So that's the stage being set. It's onto that stage that Jesus strides. That's his first century historical context. Enough talk about the Gospels and Jesus' context. Let's actually get to what Jesus himself says. So, Jesus himself, let's encounter him in these New Testament Gospels. Now, if you had to pick, if you had to pick the one thing that Jesus said, that really captured his message. The one thing. If you went out and asked people, what do you think they might say? I reckon they might say things like, the meek will inherit the earth. That was Jesus. The meek will inherit the earth. Or they might say, the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. Or maybe love your enemies. Radical, out there, crazy stuff. Love your enemies. Or maybe, for people who know their Bible a little bit, maybe there might be something like, "The Son of Man came not to serve, so not to be served, but to serve." <laughs> Those are probably some of Jesus' most well-known sayings, I reckon. But I don't think any of them capture the whole. I think you'd have to say that Jesus' central all-encompassing message was this. You can see it there on your page. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news. Literally, that's the word gospel. Proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent And believe in the gospel. Believe in the good news. God's gospel, God's grand announcement of good news is that the kingdom of God has arrived. It's drawn near. Now that's where you see it's really important to get your right background in place. That's where you need to know about that first century context. Because when Jesus arrives saying the kingdom of God is here, that's a revolutionary act to be proclaiming a kingdom, a different kingdom. That's going to upset everybody. At one level it's going to be popular, right? Because if you were a Jew, you don't want the Romans to be in charge. So it's going to be popular and you can see that in the Gospels because in the initial stages especially, Jesus... attracts huge crowds because he's proclaiming the kingdom of god that's great excellent let's kick those romans butt but at the same time it was just asking for trouble see the sadducees wouldn't be too pleased with that they had their strategy cut a deal with the romans if you're going to cause trouble with the romans then they might take that out on us so they're not going to be happy the pharisees aren't going to be terribly pleased because, you know, Jesus messing with their strict purity code, they're not going to be too happy about that. The Romans certainly aren't going to be liking you proclaiming the kingdom of God when Caesar is Lord. This was going to cause trouble. So at a fundamental level, Jesus' public proclamation of the kingdom of God to come to you was always going to be laden with problems. It was, it was religious and political dynamite. But what did Jesus mean? when he announced this kingdom of God. Well, here's here's my attempt at a definition or something, if you want to jot it down. To try to capture it in a phrase, I reckon when he says the kingdom of God, what he means is the promised reign of God or rule of God through his Messiah, fulfilling God's promises to his people and his intentions for his creation. I think that's what, is meant by this phrase, the kingdom of God, the promised rule of God through his Messiah, fulfilling his promises to his people, but also fulfilling his intentions for his creation. It's the fulfillment, actually, of the promises God made to Abraham, which were always meant to be a blessing, ultimately, for all the nations of the world. And therefore, it was actually the promises to Abraham were the solution to God's intentions for all of creation. Jesus is announcing the arrival of the fulfilment of these long-held promises. Except that, as Jesus starts to fill out what this kingdom of God will look like, it confounds most people's expectations. Um, Imagine for a moment, actually, who here is having a birthday this week? There must be some people here. Put your hand straight up if you're having a birthday. Is anyone's birthday today? Anyone's birthday today? Is there somebody whose birthday today? Because I've got a present for somebody whose birthday is today. I actually have a present. Come on, come on, hurry up. Come on, quick. Come around. Now, this, uh, this is a real present. Now, I know you shouldn't do this, but I spent 50 bucks on this present. Oh, you yeah, serious? I spent 50 bucks on a present for you. So, I'd like you to open it up. Yeah, open it up. It's exciting giving a gift. Yes, now! Open it up. That's careful. I did actually spend 50 dollars. That's alright. Oh, No, it's not The Cross of Christ by John Stott, which by the way is an excellent book. And it's only cost ten that only cost ten ninety five. Oh, come on, rip the paper, rip it. Fifty bucks. I impressed myself. That's the lid. There you go. Hey, there you go. Ooh. Ooh, it's exciting. What did I buy you? A goat. <laughs> Do you want to read it out? You can read it out. No, I, I, wrote, I wrote a message that, I wrote a message to you. Oh right. So you want me to read that out? Yeah, read it out. I wonder if this was the gift you were expecting. Hope you enjoy it. By the way, happy birthday. Hope you have a great Ancon. In him Rowan. Yeah, Yeah, that's nice. (laughs) Was that what you were expecting? No, I was expecting like something something gaggy or for fifty bucks. (laughs) No, see, the thing is, it's good though, right? It's good, isn't it? Like that's a really good gift, isn't it? It's really good. Yeah, it's really good. Like it's better than me giving you a fifty-dollar something else, isn't it? (laughs) Like this is better. Yes, it's good. Yeah. Yeah, see the thing is when Jesus came saying the kingdom of God is here everyone got really excited, cool, excellent but once he started talking about it and fleshing out what it was going to look like yeah it sounds good, I guess that's good but there was just a bit of disappointment (laughs) because maybe it's not quite what you know they were expecting it confounded their expectations the kingdom of god and so that's what we're going to what we're going to do is we're going to have a break for five minutes you can stand up stretch your legs and then we're going to come back and look about how the kingdom of god actually was thanks (laughs) let's look on page 10 at what Jesus had to say about this kingdom of God that was coming. Now what I've done on page 10, 11 and 12 and 13 is I've attempted, I've attempted on pages 10, 11, 12 and 13 to try to in some overview fashion try to do the impossible. That is I've tried to try, I've tried to capture The remarkable things that Jesus proclaimed in the kingdom of God, the unexpected things he proclaimed in this kingdom of God, but also some of the, I've put them in pairs to try to suggest how they confounded expectations again and again and again and again. Just when you think you've got it, he will say something else, you go, oh, how does that work? So I put these two double pages together to try to paint the big picture of Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom. I have left out so much, it is a travesty. That's why you actually need to read the Gospels. You need to actually just get your head into the Bible and read what Jesus has to say. It's astounding, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, it's challenging and we need to be there. So this is just a, a cursory sort of taster if you like. An attempt. So let's have a look. First of all, one of the things he says is the kingdom of God is among you. Luke 11 verse 20. If it is by the finger of God that I cast out the demons, says Jesus, then the kingdom of God has come to you. So the Gospels record that Jesus did many, many miracles. We saw earlier the hostile non-Christian historical sources confirmed that Jesus was known as a wonder worker. He cast out demons from people, miraculously healed others from a variety of ailments, from skin diseases to blindness to physical disabilities. What was the point of those? Well, they demonstrated the arrival of the kingdom of God in Jesus' own presence and person. The kingdom of God had arrived in this person, Jesus, and what God was doing through him. So the kingdom of God is among you, says Jesus, yet it is not from this world. When Jesus was on trial before Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Jesus' kingdom doesn't fit the picture of other human kingdoms. It's not a political kingdom whose borders are protected through war despite the way that Christians have sometimes attempted to defend or build Jesus' kingdom over the last 2,000 years. But his kingdom is also not from this world. It has an otherworldly origin and authority, namely a divine origin and authority. It's God's kingdom of which Jesus is the king. This kingdom, Jesus says, is growing right now. Luke 13, Jesus said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in the garden. It grew, became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. The kingdom of God is a growing reality from Jesus' original inauguration of the kingdom right through to today. We'll look more at the spread of Jesus' kingdom actually on Wednesday night, but the statistics tell us that Jesus was right the kingdom continues to grow and spread like a mustard tree. And yet, Jesus speaking on the very night before he died, he communicated that the kingdom, whilst it's growing now, it actually lies in the future in some way. He says there in Luke 22, For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So whilst the Kingdom of God, in a sense, continues to grow now more and more as people put their faith in Jesus, yet in another sense it lies in the future for all of us. What becomes apparent in Jesus' teaching is that the arrival of the Kingdom of God is not a single moment in human history, but it comes in stages. It's inaugurated now. It starts now. It's growing now. And yet none of us have experienced the Kingdom of God in all its fullness not yet only one man has that be Jesus in his resurrected and glorified form so the kingdom it's growing but it's still future and as we put our faith in Jesus what the Bible says is you become an heir of the kingdom you become someone who will inherit the kingdom through faith you can see that in say Matthew chapter 25 verse 34 Matthew 25 34 or 1 Corinthians, 1550 1 corinthians 1550 so we have this first taste of the kingdom now in this new life we have in jesus we have this taste of this kingdom life in his spirit that's taken up residence in our life in the forgiveness we enjoy from god now but the final experience of the kingdom in all its fullness is still a future promise not a present reality Now, uh, this next pair is important for reading Jesus rightly in the Gospels. The kingdom that Jesus announced was initially focused on the nation of Israel. So here's Jesus in Matthew 10. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim the good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You receive without payment, give without payment. So Jesus' preaching and healing ministry was initially focused on national Israel. Jesus came like the prophets God had sent before him, like John the Baptist who immediately preceded him. He came with a ministry to the nation of Israel to call back national Israel to obedience to the living God with whom they are in this covenant relationship. And that's what Jesus meant when he called everyone to repent. He was saying to national Israel, come back to the living God who's chosen you to be his special people. Come back to him, your God. Yet within Jesus' own ministry, there seem to be signs of something more than just national Israel. So the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, she wasn't a Jew. The centurion in Luke 7, he wasn't from national Israel. Both of whom Jesus commends for their faith, both are blessed because of their faith in him with the healing of their children. Both cases, Jesus points out, this is in some ways even exceptional. This is not the norm in Jesus' public ministry that non-Jews would get blessed. But this Israel-centric sort of focus all changes actually after Jesus' death and resurrection. When instead of sending out the twelve to just the lost sheep of Israel, he explicitly sends them to all nations. Something radical changes after Jesus' death and resurrection. And we're going to look more at that tomorrow night and Wednesday night. Well, one of the wonderful things about the arrival of the kingdom is that according to Jesus, it brings a real victory over evil. Jesus in Matthew 12. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man? Then indeed the house can be plundered. What he's saying is, he's saying I'm able to cast out demons because I've tied up the strong man. I've tied up Satan himself. Jesus is proclaiming a decisive victory over the evil one and thereby over all evil. Now what that means is in Jesus there is hope for every person who suffers as a victim of any sort of evil and wickedness because Jesus has tied up the strong man, Satan. Now exactly how Jesus did that we'll get to tomorrow night. But the victory over evil is a part of the reason why the announcement of the kingdom of God is such good news. That's why it's a gospel, a grand good news announcement. Yet despite bringing victory over evil, the kingdom of God involves personal suffering for any who are part of it. The victory over evil doesn't seem to remove you from evil's touch. So Jesus called the crowds in Mark 8:34 with his disciples and said to them, if any of you want to be my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Now, this is one of those moments where it's easy to forget how weird and strange, frankly, Jesus was in what he said. See, the cross is a horrendous image. It's a terrible method of execution. You take up your cross when the Romans force you to carry your cross to the point of your death. That's what taking up your cross means. It's what it refers to. Jesus is saying here, he's talking about voluntarily denying yourself in order to take up your cross and follow him. It would be like Jesus saying, if you want to be my follower, then let go of your comfortable existence, pick up your electric chair and follow me. What? Or, if you want to be my follower, give up all that you want to cling on to and follow me to the firing squad. What? Jesus is using the cross here as an image not just of self-denial, but of suffering. Suffering. It's a voluntary embrace of personal suffering if you want to be a follower of this Jesus. Have you heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a famous German theologian who was executed under the Nazis towards the end of World War II. He wrote in a book called The Cost of Discipleship, he wrote this. He said, when Christ calls us, he bids us Come and die. Come and die. And Jesus actually goes on in the very next few verses to say that those who lose their life, metaphorically, for all of us, but literally for some, those who lose their life for him and for his gospel Those are the people who will ultimately save their life. Being part of God's kingdom means embracing personal suffering because you follow Jesus. And Jesus says, if you're not willing to do that, then you can't be his follower. Take up your cross and follow me. Well, unlike what the zealots imagined, within God's kingdom, God's people were actually called on to submit to the world's authorities, even if they were pagans, not rebel against them. So Jesus says there, said to them, give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things that are God's. That is, Jesus had no problem paying taxes to the Romans. Yet at the same time, he also demanded total allegiance from any who wanted to be part of God's kingdom here come up against another extreme saying of Jesus. Whoever comes to me, he says, Luke 14, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Now, frankly, what sort of extreme allegiance is this? It's not even that Jesus says, put me first and then everyone else. He just demands total allegiance. Unless you hate mother and father, wife, children, siblings, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. That is, you have to put aside every other relationship, every other affection in order to follow him. Those other relationships now exist only within A radical reorientation that your life now has around about this person, Jesus. Does Jesus mean you actually have to hate your parents, your siblings? Well, he he can't mean that actually because elsewhere Jesus says you have to love your neighbour. And Jesus isn't contradictory as though he says love your neighbour but hate your family. So your family would fall into the wider category of neighbours. Neighbours you are related to. The issue is one of primary allegiance. Jesus is radically trumping in over family allegiance. In the first century, there was no closer affiliation than family. Yet here, Jesus will not allow for any rival, even a secondary one, in the affections of his followers. So what you can't do, if you're following Jesus, is to maintain a dual focus, a dual affection. You can't say, Jesus and anything. It now has to be, Jesus, therefore, other things. it's all radically reshaped, reoriented, revalued around this person, Jesus. Jesus says the same thing elsewhere about money. You can't serve two masters, he says. You can't have Jesus and money. You can't have God and mammon. Now we could explore some more here on the page there, what Jesus teaches about his mission and the kingdom of God. You can see there on your outline some more passages from the Gospels I've drawn out. For example, how Jesus upholds the Torah, the Old Testament law, yet he stands in authority over it when he declares all foods clean. Jesus shows he's zealous for the temple, which was the centre of Israel's religious and political life, yet he announces its destruction and actually tries to replace the temple. He does replace the temple with himself. Jesus teaches that his life in the kingdom of God for his followers is to be characterised by love. They'll know you are my disciples if you'll love one another, he said in John 13. Yet being part of his kingdom actually means that like him, you'll be hated by the world. In his public ministry, Jesus exposed the hypocrisy of Israel's religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. And you can see passages there like Luke 11, where the religious leaders are so outraged by Jesus, by his public rebuke of them, that we're told they begin to oppose him fiercely. Or a bit later in Mark 12, where Jesus likens the religious leaders in a parable to wicked tenants whom God's going to remove. And how do they respond to that? Well, they respond by trying to arrest him. Yet at the same time, whilst exposing the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, Jesus simultaneously extended an outrageous welcome, an outrageous welcome, for sinners for those whom the religious and the pious had written off it was actually one of the most distinctive practices of Jesus one of the most common questions ever asked about him why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners people who good religious Jews wouldn't touch wouldn't be near why does Jesus constantly go and eat with these people Well, Jesus' own answer you can see there in Mark chapter 2, verse 17. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus comes for those who are in need. He comes to save the lost. He comes to heal the sick. He comes to redeem those in slavery. Not literally as though Jesus was a one-man rescue helicopter. Come around rescue you the lost the needy you the ill He's not a one man chopper What he's saying is He's come to rescue those who are lost with respect to God Those who are lost with respect to God's kingdom He's come to make it possible for them to be found To be to be brought in to God's kingdom to be redeemed to be healed. Well, this twin foci of Jesus' ministry where he exposes the hypocrisy of the religious leaders but he welcomes the sinners and the outcasts, that, that's in the next pair as well. See, Jesus came in and he announced judgment with tears on unfaithful Israel. You can see that in places like uh, Luke 19 where Jesus weeps over Jerusalem as he sees it from a distance. Why does he weep over Jerusalem? Because when he looks at Jerusalem, he knows that it is there in Jerusalem that national Israel will demonstrate how much they really hate their God, how much really they had turned their hearts away from their God because it is in Jerusalem they are going to kill him, God's son. So he sees Jerusalem and he weeps, not because he's going to die, but he weeps over their hard hearts. And he proclaims judgment on Jerusalem because of their hard hearts. And yet at the same time as announcing judgment, it's also a message of good news, of mercy and life for those who repent. Jesus says there, John 12, I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. And the way in particular... To be saved from God's judgment was to entrust yourself in faith to this Jesus. There on your page, John 5. Very truly I tell you, says Jesus, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. See, the salvation that Jesus offers here is much more than just a rescue from the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus is announcing, astoundingly, eternal life. Life that never will come under judgment and condemnation. Life that will go on forever in relationship with Jesus and his heavenly father. That's what he comes announcing. And he says, so valuable is what I'm I'm offering you here. So valuable is this life that it's worth everything to get it. It's the present you would do anything to have to get this life. He likens it there in Matthew 13 He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. These are the Baroda pearls on the screen. It is the most expensive pearl necklace ever to be sold. They were last sold at auction three years ago for $8.2 million. Can you imagine selling off everything you possibly own in order to secure this necklace? The house, the boat, the car. You don't own any of those things, do you, actually? (laughs) Um, But imagine... That your folks, who I'm sure are loaded, imagine your folks, (laughs) they sold off the house, the coat, the boat, I think we have got car and boat, big stuff, wink, (laughs) the coat, Um, the books, the furniture, you get home from Ancon and they say, a bit of a problem, we've gone through the whole house and every item is now on eBay (laughs) and we're selling it all. Because we've decided we want to own the Baroda Pearls. <laughs> Selling everything to get it. Well, Jesus is saying that to be part of God's kingdom with the mercy and the life that he has on offer for you on offer for repentant and needy sinners, he says that is more valuable than anything else you might have or you might desire to have. It's more valuable than life itself to have this. To be part of God's kingdom is worth every sacrifice, any cost. It's worth every effort. Yet, for something so valuable, the kingdom of God doesn't seem to get you very much in worldly terms. Matthew 8, a scribe then approached Jesus and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, well, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Spiritually rich, not necessarily materially rich. And finally, the kingdom of God that Jesus announced meant the reign of God's Messiah. Matthew 16. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Jesus comes as the promised Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the one who will reign in God's kingdom as his king. His reign isn't what we expect, it certainly wasn't what the Jews expected at the time, because from the beginning, actually, Jesus taught that the reign of the Messiah would actually necessitate his rejection, death, and resurrection and that freaked everybody out. And so continue on in Matthew 16. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, undergo great suffering at the hand of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is not a kingship like we expect. This is not the royal rule that you'd anticipate. But Jesus saw as fundamental to his role and rule as God's Messiah, essential to this very offer of life and mercy to repentant sinners, was that he was going to have to die and then be raised again. And we're going to explore that more tonight and tomorrow night. Let's draw it together. This conference has been called Jesus Revealing Reality. What reality does Jesus reveal? In what we've seen this morning, he reveals the inaugurated kingdom of God. Doesn't come in final fullness, but it has come in his person, in his actions and his words, the kingdom of God is inaugurated. It's begun, introduced in a real and wonderful way, albeit not yet complete. And so we see in the Gospels, Jesus announced judgment and the end of national Israel. We see him announce life transforming forgiveness and mercy for those who repent and have faith. We see that his coming is a cause for great joy but also we see that he was going to be a cause of division. Luke 12, do you think that I've come to bring peace to the earth, says Jesus? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided three against two and two against three. Jesus and the King of God was never going to be an entirely peaceful affair. Just the opposite, actually. He was going to be the litmus paper that would reveal the true state of every person's heart. They were going to reveal in their very response to him whether they were truly for the living God or whether they were against him. Jesus would be the touchstone. And that brings us to the key question that we have to face again and again throughout this week. Who is this Jesus? What we've seen today, he's God's Messiah announcing the kingdom. So the question for you and for me is this If this is who he is, will you listen to him? He did amazing signs. He made extraordinary claims. Are you prepared to listen to him? What he says is sometimes uncomfortable. It's often confronting. Frequently it's wonderful. It's captivating. It's illuminating. exciting. Are you prepared to listen to him? And yet he comes announcing troubling judgment and wonderful mercy. He exposes our ignorance, our willful disobedience, and he holds out eternal life for the having, for you. Are you willing to listen to him? Jesus said in Mark 4.9, let anyone with ears to hear listen. So why don't we pray? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you might give us minds to understand this Jesus who we meet here in the scriptures. Give us eyes to see him. Give us ears to hear. And give us hearts that want to obey. Hearts that want to love him. We pray, Father, that you would help us this week to know this Jesus better. So that by having our faith in him, we might hold that eternal life that you've won for us. Amen.